Hello, what's this week's Sport Zone on Salford City Radio? I'm Rob Paxson, and we're here talking all things sport in Salford. Joining me the show this week, as ever, we have James Sweeten from the Sweeten and Salsby podcast. How's your week been, mate? Yeah, terrific, Rob. I mean, we're all enjoying the European Championships. We're all excited. We all believe it's coming home, and we can't wait to preview our next games. Yeah, so there's lots and lots to talk about on the show. Uh, James, we're going to start with Rugby League. It's been a you know difficult week for, for Swinton and Salford. Yeah, most certainly. The Wakefield and Hull FC games for Salford both got postponed due to a COVID outbreak on Salford's squad. Rob, can you tell us about that? Yeah, like you said, James, the last two games for Salford Red Devils, which was Wakefield at home and Hull FC, which was due to be played on Monday night away, uh, were both postponed because two Salford players recorded positive tests uh, in the least recent round of, of testing, uh, which means six players and two members of staff had to self-isolate, which means Salford didn't have enough players to be able to fulfil the two fixtures. Bit of a blow um, for the club because obviously, you know, the... They wanted to, you know, play as many games as they can, especially in these COVID times. It's difficult, um, but unfortunately, yet yeah, they've had a they've had a little bit of a breakout, which means they've had to postpone the, the next two games, James. Which which is disappointing, but I'm sure uh, Richard Marshall and, and the rest of the people at the club are trying the best uh, to make sure all the players are fit and well and healthy, ready for the next fixtures to come. Yeah, most certainly. On the eighth of July, the club are hosting a meeting at the AJ Bell at seven o'clock about the future of the club at the stadium. What do you make of this whole debacle, Rob? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what Paul King has to say. Um, there's been lots of rumours about the future of Salford at the AJ Bell Stadium, uh, with Salford City and Sale Sharks both being mentioned uh, in in the uh, in the in the process. Paul King is a great leader. He's very honest. He'll, he wants to obviously keep the fans in the know about what's going on. And, and meetings like this is, are important in that in that situation because how he communicates the issues to the fans will will obviously allow the fans to sort of deal with the process and, and Salford to move on, whatever happens. So it will be interesting. Like I said, 8th of July, Thursday, uh, the 1873 club at the AJ Bell Stadium, 7pm start. The tickets are free. Uh, you just log on to the, the sort of ticket um, database at the club and they will issue the free ticket for you. It'd be good to get fans down there uh, so then everyone knows what, what's going on. We're all on the same page, James. What would the ideal outcome be for you, Rob? It's a good question, James. I'd, I'd, I'd like to stay at the AJ Bell Stadium. Uh, we've been there for nearly eight years now. We've, we've started to put our sort of impression on it. Fans are getting used to going there and we're building our home there, really. Um, but I do understand uh, that the AJ Bell is a, is a business and it needs to make money. And it will be interesting to see what, what the future holds with that. Uh, Salford City FC are, are a football club who are looking to grow and their current uh, ground at Moor Lane uh, or the Peninsula Stadium as it's known now isn't big enough uh, to be in a, a sort of a top flight uh, football so top flight is in sort of first division Premier League so they will be looking for a big stadium if they do move up so you never know what might happen there Sales Sharks are a sort of rugby union club they have, have a big ambition to be bigger than they are so they will be looking at uh, sort of expanding their sort of support base so it will be interesting to see what happens you just kind of hope that you know, an agreement can be reached and, and Salford can continue at the AJ Bell Stadium. Um, they will hopefully that that is the case, we'll be able to. But if that's not the case, then obviously they'll have to look further afield, um, at the likes of Berry or you know, like I say, Peninsula Stadium. We, we don't really want to move out the city because obviously Swinton Lions, um, when they moved out the city, uh, 
30 years ago when they left Station Road it kind of uh, put that club back a long long way so lessons will have to be learned if Salford are to, to be involved the city but you're just hoping that that doesn't happen and, and um, Paul King and, and the rest of the, the board of directors can, can organise something uh, with the stadium people uh, and we can move from there yeah. Salford Learning Disabilities teams start training at Eccles College at 7pm on Tuesday. It's great that the club can offer this to people who may be disabled and also want to play the sport. Yeah, it's fantastic, James. It really is because obviously rugby league is for everybody and, and if Salford can provide um, you know, rugby for sort of the disabled community and they, they want to get involved, uh, this allows them to do it and... and Everyone is, is can get involved in rugby and it, and it allows them to do this. It's great. Other teams have it and, it, and it's grown over the last few years You know, with leagues now involved with different teams. And if Salford can sort of join that league, it improves the profile of the club as well. So you're hoping that obviously the people who would like to get involved can do uh, and it can only be a good thing moving forward. Right, now moving on to the games this weekend. Salford face Castlefield, uh, Castleford rather, away from home on Sunday and it'll be a really tough test. Castlefield playing the Challenge Cup final the week after so it'll be interesting to see how this all goes down. Yeah, you're right. You're right, James. Obviously the Cup final the week after for Castleford so will they have one eye on it? They, they've, not, they've missed the last few weeks because they had a bit of a COVID outbreak as well and, and not having enough players to play. So they, they'll be rested up. W will they think about maybe trying to sort of postpone that sort of game? But obviously weeks are running out. They need to complete the season in so many weeks and there's so only so many um, you know available match days for both sides. I think it's probably a bit of a pain for Castle, but Salford haven't played for you know for, for at least a week. They've missed two games, so they'll be uh, ready to, to perform, James. It's a difficult place to go. Castleford they had a top side. Um, but we are we are a good side. We've got quality all over the field. I know we've had a, a few rough weeks where you know we've not got the rub, rub, rub of the green um, you know disciplinary wise but I'm looking at this team and I'm thinking we can go to Castleford and get a result, um, especially because they'll have one eye on the cup final. So you're kind of hoping Richard Marshall's men, uh, just like they did at Huddersfield, uh, pick up the two points and bring them back to Salford. Most certainly, Rob. Are you thinking we can win this one then? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that, James. I'm thinking we can we can go away uh, to Castleford. We, we've we've done them many. We've beat them a few times um, away from home, um, and I, I just think you know with the, the quality of of player we have in that squad, uh, James. It just needs a moment. Uh, Tuilola here, he's back in in the squad. He, he needs to be firing uh, deck pattern. Uh, Chris Atkin, you've, you've got a nucleus of quality players there who can create and will open up teams so you're just kind of hoping that them boys can find a bit of you know confidence find a bit of consistency and and to you know make the result at Salford's on the Sunday night now moving on to the other greater Manchester club Swinton were beaten at Whitehaven could you break the down game down for us Rob yeah Swinton travelled to Whitehaven on Sunday and lost 36 points to 22. Uh, they were leading, James, at one point. Uh, disappointing, obviously, to, to let the lead slip and to go down 36 points to 22. Um, tries from Jerome Do Jer Jer Jeremiah Doyle, which is another great sporting name. Uh, Mitch Cox, Paul Nash and Dean Meadows all got over the line for Swinton Lions. Uh, Surely will they will be disappointing that they couldn't get their result after being in front. But like we said over a few weeks, they, they are a good side to win. They're scratching about. They just need one win. One win and then their tails will be up and they can keep fighting for that rest for the rest of the season. And I do, I do feel sorry for Stuart Lilly because obviously he's got what he's got and you're just hoping they can find something for the rest of the season. 
So how do you see the game against Sheffield going next week? Well, it's another tough test. They're at home at Swinton Lions. They've had, they've had a few games, James, where just haven't got the look, look, look of the rub of the green, you see. And, and you're kind of hoping that the luck turns and they can get a result. Like I just said, one result changes everything for Swinton Lions. The, the effort's there. The commitment's there. They've got some great players as well. They just need to, to get off the mark and, and get a win. Most certainly. And now I'm going to throw it back to you to ask me a few questions about the world of boxing. Yeah, let's start with uh, YouTube's Jake Paul, who is currently the most hated figure in boxing, with so many wanting to see him lose. His next opponent will be Floyd Mayweather, help coach him. Coach him. Would this be a disaster for the YouTuber? Yeah, Jake Paul's next opponent, the chosen one, Tyron Woodley, a former UFC welterweight champion of the world. In Jake Paul's last fight, he took on Ben Askren again. A former UFC fighter, not a champion, but he was a champion in a couple of organizations such as, you know, Bellator and one championship. Never renowned for his striking. In fact, he was he was quite often considered the worst striker in the history of the UFC and maybe mixed martial arts in general. It's not something that came naturally at all to Ben Askren. And I don't think he took his training overly seriously. I think he spent a little bit of time with Freddie Roach, but in general, he didn't have much of a camp. There wasn't much structure to his training. He seemed to just be in his wrestling academy, hitting pads, having the old sparring session, but he didn't seem to be living the life and giving it 100%. Tyron Woodley not only has more talent in the striking department than Ben Askren, but he also has a better work ethic. He seems to be training in a proper boxing gym, and he's spending some good time out with Floyd Mayweather. Mayweather, of course, you know, one of, if not the greatest talents of all time. And somebody who has a very, very keen eye for boxing, somebody with a monstrous boxing IQ. And if he can impart any of the wisdom upon Tyron Woodley, it gives Tyron a massive, massive chance in this fight. Yes, Jake Paul's got more experience in the striking than Tyron Woodley. But Woodley's been doing this for a lot of time in MMA. He knows how to throw his hands a lot more than Ben Askren did. It was a weapon that he used throughout his career. And if Floyd Mayweather can refine that a little bit, it gives him a very good chance in this fight. There was a big scandal this week as a world champion boxer has pulled out of a fight claiming his opponent was on was avoiding drug testing. Tell us about that. Yeah, Nanito Donaire has always been renowned for for being a real stickler for drug testing, somebody who always wants it involved in his fight. He absolutely swears by VADA testing. He's one of the cleanest fighters out there, and he doesn't want to get involved with fighters who aren't willing to participate in VADA testing. I think he's one of the very few that participates in drug testing 365 days of the year, so you know that he well and truly is clean. He was scheduled for a massive unification against John Real Casemiro, and supposedly, according to Denaire, Casemiro was very reluctant to take part in drug testing. You can read into that what you will, but Nanito Denaire isn't interested in participating in the fight unless it was concrete that there would be testing, and Casemiro seemed to delay that process. So Nanito Denaire has pulled out, and I don't blame him for taking a stand. I mean, can we say for sure whether Casemiro was on anything or not? Absolutely not. We haven't got the evidence to say that. However, you can't blame Nanito Donaire for pulling out of a fight if his opponent seems reluctant to play on an even playing field. So I think it's fantastic that Donaire's taken a stand and I hope to see more of this in boxing because overall what we want is a clean sport. Is, is drugs a, an issue in boxing? Most certainly, Rob. I mean, there's so many 
that test positive for drugs. I mean, in the last few years we've we had with our Canelo, Gene Pascal's just tested positive for I think four banned supplements. Jerome Miller who was scheduled to fight Anthony Joshua, Sergey Kovalev. We have so many. Let's not forget these are just the ones that are getting caught. Hmm. I mean, statistically, a lot of people said that around seventy-five percent of world champions in boxing are probably on some form of performance-enhancing drug, hmm. and that's not a good stat by any stretch of the imagination. We don't want this sport to go down the same route as cycling where it's often considered that, you know, you have to be on it to be able to even compete with the best. It's not good. And I'm glad that there's fighters like Nanito Denaire out there that are willing to take a stand. For the Tyson Fury Fury trilogy fight, Deontay Wilder is working heavy on his inside game. Is that a good idea? In thought, yes. In practice, I'm not sure. I mean, if Deontay Wilder can really do well on the inside of Tyson Fury, then it'd be fantastic. I mean, Fury's game plan in the last fight was to march forward, and the onto Wilder struggled on the back foot, and when they got in close, he was absolutely mauled by the Gypsy King. There wasn't much Wilder could do to stop him. So, in theory, working on his inside game would help. But Deontay Wilder, you know, he's got a good jab, he's explosive, he's athletic, but in general, he's a bit of a one-trick pony. He only really has the right hand, and I'm not sure what he can do to a man who's, you know, 36 years of age. How much can you change him? At this stage, for me, he just is what he is, Rob. So I'd work on what he's good at. But for me, if, if this if this process had occurred five, five, even you know three years ago, why'd I be in a much better position? But I don't know if he's got the boxing IQ like Tyson Fury has to completely change his style of fighting in one training camp. He's also trying to gain weight again. Was that probably a bad idea? I think so, Rob. I mean, Deontay Wilder is a very skinny man. And he put on a lot of weight for the last fight, and it didn't look good on him. He struggled to carry that weight. He wasn't as fast. He wasn't as explosive. And he's somebody who needs to be light for me, Rob. He has the one-punch knockout power, a heavier punch than any man he's ever lived before, at about 15 stone. So just stay there, because in that, that way, he can maintain his speed. He loses it if he puts on weight. So if he does go into this fight, you know, I saw a video of him the other day, I think bench pressing about 300 pounds or whatever it was and it's just it seems unnecessary it seems like his ego is getting the best of him it feels like he wants to be strongest Tyson Fury on the inside but that's not the reason he lost he got comprehensively outboxed and the only way around that is to have the athletic advantages to be quicker and he's going to lose that if he puts on the weight when you say boxing on the inside is that close when they, when they go in close yeah, when they're going close when they're battling in the clinch you know when they're really in the trenches and I don't think Deontay had a uh, particularly looks good there. Michael Conlon has have will have a homecoming fight in August against a big Irish name. Tell us about that. He will, Michael Conlon. I think we've been waiting a few years now for this man to become a star. I mean, he was so controversial in the Olympic Games when he gave his middle finger to the judges that robbed him. And then he made his debut at Madison Square Garden. He was walked up by Conor McGregor and there was so much hype around him. But due to a few boring performances, that hype has dwindled a little bit. So I think coming back to Northern Ireland, uh, making a huge comeback at an outdoor stadium, a purpose-built stadium, against a big name like TJ Dahini, a former world champion in his own right, somebody I think has only lost twice in his career, and only a couple of years ago pushed Daniel Roman very close in a unification fight. I think it's a great fight for Michael Conlon to get his teeth stuck in. So I think it's one that will grasp the attention of the Irish media. I think it's one that will capture the imagination of the public. I think they're probably the best two Irish fighters in and around that weight class. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And at this stage of his career, 
it's probably the right fight for Michael Conlon. He seems very much on the cusp of a world title shot. TJ Dahini's slightly going down the ladder. And if Michael uh, Conlon can take his scalp, then it'll be a huge achievement from, And maybe he can fight for a world title in his next outing. Eddie Hearn's revealed his lineup for the presenters for his new boxing venture. Tell us uh, more about that. Yeah, he has, hasn't he? I mean, it's caught people by surprise. There's some names that you expect to be in there. There's some that aren't, and I'll break them down one by one. We've got Darren Barker and Chris Lloyd. The pair of them have been doing a lot of commentary for DAZN Boxing. They're very popular. People have enjoyed their non-biased, straightforward type commentary. And I think they're very welcome on board Eddie Hearn's new UK DAZN project. I think people were very happy to see them. Moving on, we've got Tony Bellew. You know, the Scouser, a very good talker, I think, He's very, very close to Eddie Hearn, so it comes as no surprise whatsoever that he's wrapped up in this project. As a commentator, I think he's good. He's struggled a bit in recent times. Maybe he's been, you know, dwindled into that Sky narrative. He's sort of... Sky have always been a company that sort of really shove a narrative down your throat, so to speak. They have a very, very specific story that they want to tell. And sometimes whatever's happening in the fight doesn't represent their story and they actually ignore what's happening in the fight. And in recent times, Tony Bowie has been part of that, but hoping to zone, he can get away with that. Because in, just in terms of general talent, he's a good commentator. He's entertaining on the microphone and I think he'll be a good addition. Next up, we've got Andy Lee, a very articulate eye for boxing, somebody who knows the sport inside out, somebody who's fantastic at breaking down game plans, somebody who's fantastic at seeing things in fights and one of the best pundits I think around at the moment. So he's more than welcome for me to be part of this lineup. Then we've got Laura Woods, somebody who's been involved in you know sport for a long time, a fantastic presenter. I'm happy to see her involved. Now, this is one that shocked people a little bit. We had Maya Jarma. Of course, you know she's very much in the public eye. In terms of actual boxing knowledge, uh, she doesn't have any. And that's not me just being a blatantly sexy rob. She's admitted that herself. I think she posted a, a photo on Twitter a couple of years ago of Anthony Joshua saying that she didn't actually know anything about boxing. But she's been brought in here. You know, you need somebody who can capture people. You've got an audience crossing over from culture coming into boxing who'll like to see her present. She's very good on screen. She has a presence. And, you know, once she gets into boxing, she can hopefully do a good job. I mean, you know, we've seen Anna Woolhouse on Sky, you know. She doesn't necessarily have the greatest of boxing knowledges, and I think she'd admit that herself, but she's a very good on-screen presence, and hopefully Maya Jama can be the same. And then lastly, and this is the most interesting Rob Brown for me, is Mike Costello, somebody who's you know, commentated for BBC Sport for a very long period of time, but somebody who's always painted the picture on radio. So doing that is obviously a very different skill to doing it you know, on the TV. So it's going to be interesting to see how he switches his style over. But I think he's very talented and he's somebody I'm very excited to see make that switch. Do you think this new adventure is going to be a competitor in the market? It's very difficult. I think Eddie Hearn is the best promoter in boxing full stop, not just in England. However, I don't like the move from Sky Sports to the zone. And yes, in recent times, Sky have wound people up, you know, with their the narrative-driven cards, their their commentary, you know, some of the bad decisions that have gone down on Sky cards. But the advantage Sky has for mainstream media is the Sky Sports news. They can pump content out all day, every day. If they've got a big pay-per-view, that's all you'll see is them advertising that fact. It gets people invested. And the people that are in the pub or at home, they'll see you know, uh, Manchester United versus Chelsea. And then out later on, they'll advertise, coming up after the game, we've got Kel Brook versus whoever, or Anthony Crawler versus whoever. Obviously, Crawler retired now, but you get my point. If you go into the zone, it's a streaming market. Huh. Who, it, it, unless you're a hardcore boxing fan, how do you know the fight's taking place? 
because there's no big advertising telling you that it's on. All there is, you know, you might get a YouTube advert or something like that. You've not got the monster that is Sky Sports News. And what are the pubs going to do? They just leave the sport on after the boxing straight after the football straight comes on the boxing and the punters can all, you know, enjoy it, have a few drinks, watch the boxing. Do you think, you know, are all the pubs going to pay for a streaming service? I, I just don't see it being good in that sense. And I think Sky Sports, he should have stuck with them. So it, it, it's really a battle between mainstream sport media and online sport media and, and who comes out on top. Yeah, most certainly, Rob. I mean, people are saying that streaming is the future. And I think that is the case in terms of films. I mean, everybody's got Netflix, hasn't they? But that isn't built overnight. And I think it's a very, very, very big ask to get a streaming service ahead of Sky Sports. I think it's a massive ask for Eddie Hearn, and I'm not sure it's one he can pull off because he's been trying it in the States. Uh, I think he's had the zone over there for about three or four years, and it hasn't taken off hugely. It isn't doing the same sort of numbers that Showtime are doing or HBO used to do or Fox Sports do. So... I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure why he thinks the model's going to work over here. I mean, I know there's a lot of money in design, and I know that they have conquered the globe in other countries. I mean, I know they're massive in Japan. I know they're massive in Spain. But I think the sporting market is controlled in the UK on television by Sky Sports, by your BTs, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Back to back to the boxing and other boxers. Lynn Don Arthur returns to the ring on Saturday night. Is he closing in on a world title shot? Yeah, for me, it's, I think Lyndon Arthur's a very underrated talent. His win last time out against Anthony Yard was a fantastic one. He was a big, big underdog in that, and he showed his sublime boxing skill. I mean, his jab couldn't miss all night. He was absolutely tremendous. Of course, Joe Smith is the current WBO champion, a very, very tough man, but it's a fight that Lyndon Arthur could win. And Frank Warren, his promoter, has got a very tight relationship with the WBO. So it wouldn't shock me if in a fight or two's time, he's fighting for that world title. And he could even win it. This weekend, he's taken on David Ferracci, an Italian uh, based in Switzerland. A good fighter. He's got a 15-0 record, seven knockouts. There's a couple of decent wins on that record. I mean, he has a win in his last fight against an unbeaten man called Emre Kuka. He's got a couple of good wins. He's the Italian light heavyweight champion. But he's got nobody of the calibre of Lyndon Arthur. And that's why I think Lyndon will win this one. I think the Italian is going to be out of his depth. Final bit of boxing. Uh, Anthony Yard will also be make his comeback on the bill. Tell us about that. He will, of course, beaten by Lyndon Arthur last time out. Anthony Yard's going to be looking to make a statement. I think he'll get an explosive knockout of his opponent. He was scheduled to fight an unbeaten fighter himself, a similar standard to Lyndon Arthur. But looking at, at BoxRec here, that fight appears to have been called off. So I'm not entirely sure whether that'll be going ahead on Saturday night or not. If it does, I mean, it's a decent fight for him. If not, we'll see who Frank Warren gets in. But I think it's mightily important now for Anthony Yard that he gets a high quality of opponent because he spent so long before his world title fight fighting absolute nobody. He was one of the worst managed fighters in that regard I've ever seen. I mean, there was absolutely no quality in terms of the fighters he was going up against. I mean, and I think that cost him in the world title fight. He didn't have that experience. So hopefully Frank Warren can find him a decent opponent for Saturday night. Yeah, so, so James, that's all the, the boxing uh, chat, and let's talk uh, USC now. Uh, Conor McGregor makes his comeback on Saturday night against a man who beat him in his previous fight. Break it down for us, James. It's an absolutely terrific contest, Rob. We've got Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. It's the biggest fight in the sport right now. For many a year, Conor McGregor has been the biggest star that the UFC have had to offer. But he's struggled in recent times. Since that loss to Floyd Mayweather in the boxing world, 
he's not quite been able to grasp the stardom that he had in his previous years. I mean, he struggled badly against Khabib. He lost every single round. He had a comeback victory against Donald Cerrone, but then he lost to Dustin Poirier. He's just been so inactive, and it's hard to determine whether Conor McGregor is ever going to get back to his best or not. But I'll tell you for nothing that Dustin Poirier is improving fight after fight after fight. He's been on such a good run. I mean, some of the names he's beaten, I mean, the likes of Max Holloway, the likes of Justin Gaethje, the likes of Eddie Alvarez, the likes of Anthony Pettis. He just keeps on winning, and he's somebody who desperately needs a world title belt wrapped around his race. But if he's going to get there, he has to beat Conor McGregor. The 1-1 one, one right now, McGregor winning the first one, Poirier winning the second one. It's a grudge match. Everything's on the line in this one. I can't wait to see it play out. Conor McGregor, for me, probably the technically more refined striker. He's got a fantastic one too. That left hand is made of absolute thunder. And if it lands, it's more than definitely going to knock somebody out. It's an absolutely fantastic punch. But Dustin Poirier was able to time Conor McGregor's time. He was able to avoid those shots, which gives him a good chance in this one. And he'll be far more confident, especially going into this one with a crowd behind him. But how seriously did Conor McGregor train last time out? Did he give it his all? It's hard to get up and train in the morning, Rob, when you're sleeping in silk sheets. And I think this is the last time Conor McGregor is going to get a big opportunity. So for me... It's good that I've heard that he's you know, staying away from his wife and kids. He's dedicated himself 100%. He'll come into this one motivated. He'll give it his all. And I'm slightly favouring him in this one. But Dustin Poirier is never one to write off. And he himself will have so much confidence and he's only getting better. Yeah, we, so you talked about motivation uh, for Conor McGregor. What, what, what signs you, do you look for when you're thinking if he will be motivated for this or not? I mean, first things first. You look for his attitude outside the cage, don't you? You look for if he's getting in trouble. Because that's something that Conor McGregor's done a lot over the last few years, whether it's throwing stuff through bus windows, whether it's getting into cages at, you know, at Bellator events and pushing reveries, whether it's punching old men in pubs because they didn't want to shot his whiskey. I mean, it's ridiculous. Conor McGregor has had so much controversy over the last few years. He's been so inactive. The best thing that we've seen so far, as I mentioned, is that he's moved away from his wife and kids. He's going to be focusing on this fight 100%. And that's what he needs to do. He needs to feel a sense of jeopardy. And maybe he didn't feel that in the Dustin Poirier fight. The first fight went so easy for him. He knocked Poirier out in style. And maybe he just, you know, skimmed through the training camp, sort of didn't, I mean, he just swam for it, didn't he? He didn't try that hard. And maybe he wasn't motivated. Maybe he didn't have the fear. And hopefully now that Dustin Poirier has knocked him out and he's shown him that he can hit very hard. Let's not forget that Conor McGregor had never been knocked out before in the octagon. I think something will have clicked. I think he'll know it's his last chance. He's got all the money in the world. But if he wants to cement his legacy, he needs to win. What do you, you think is the likelihood of Conor becoming the champion again? Most people are completely writing Conor McGregor off from becoming a world champion again. And if Khabib Nurmagomedov was still the champion, I'd agree, Rob. However, he has beaten Dustin Poirier before. He's got every chance of doing it again. And if he does, he's the biggest star in that weight class, and, and indeed the whole UFC. He'll definitely get a world title jet against Charles Oliveira. And Oliveira is not the greatest boxer. He might have a better ground game than Conor McGregor, but he doesn't hit anywhere near as hard. And when he has been rattled in the past, you know, he's folded. And who's to say that Conor McGregor can't put his lights out? He's been knocked out before, I think, eight times. So McGregor's got a real good chance of becoming champion again for me. And people will say I'm silly saying that, but I 100% stand by that statement. 
does the sport UFC need Conor McGregor to be the champion? That's a really tough question, Rob, and a very good one. I mean, people often say that, and the UFC have had stars before in the past, you know, the likes of Brock Lesnar, a massive pay-per-view attraction. Ronda Rousey, again, a massive pay-per-view attraction. Both of them are retired now. But I don't think either of them quite had the superstar levels of Conor McGregor. But the UFC have to be prepared for their biggest stars to lose because, you know, that's just what happens. It's sport. Nobody in this one goes on forever. I mean, aside from Khabib and John Jones, there hasn't been anyone that's gone an entire career without being defeated. And both of those men, you know, have arguably lost fights in the past. I mean, John Jones arguably lost to Dominic Reyes. Khabib may have lost to Glazen Tebow. It does happen. So the sport is always ready and aware that people are going to lose. I mean, in boxing, you can lose a fight, you can come back, and there's so many names, there's so many different people in each promotional stable. In the UFC, they put the best against the best, and there's no defending your winning record. So... Conor McGregor's loss will all have been something that the UFC have, you know, have apprehended, they've expected. But do they need him? For me, there's no other superstars. And we compare people like, I mean, maybe Israel Adesanya as being a superstar. And they are in the home countries. And they are in terms of hardcore fans. But I don't think anybody transcends like Conor McGregor. Like, if I was to listen to you know, maybe the 10 biggest names in the UFC to you, Rob, or another casual UFC fan, how many would they know aside from Conor McGregor? Not that many. Mm. And that's such an important thing to mention. He's the only one really right now who has that crossover appeal. Who Sports fans around the world tune in to see. I don't think there's anybody else. So to an extent, maybe they do, Rob. Bobby Knuckles? Bobby Knuckles, of course, he's your favourite. How could we forget about him, Rob? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens there. If, if he does actually lose, is, is there a way back in for him, do you think? I mean, he's always Conor McGregor, isn't he? He's always going to have that star power. And, you know, maybe you could do the trilogy with Nate Diaz. That'd be a big fight. But with every loss, your star power dwindles, doesn't it? Because one of the amazing things about Conor McGregor was he talked a lot of smack, but he also backed it up. And when you're not doing that anymore, you lose your appeal a little bit because it doesn't mean as much. That Mystic Max sort of presence he had, it is gone, really. So unless you get a victory this weekend, I don't see him being that massive pay-per-view star anymore. What does it mean to his, his opponent, obviously, this, this contest? Justin Poirier, it means absolutely everything. Right now, there's not a single fighter in the UFC with more wins to have not won a world title bet than Justin Poirier. He's been at this sport for such a long period of time, and he's really grinded out the hard way. He's gone through an absolute murderer's row of opponents. Something that's interesting, though, in this one, Rob, is that after the fight, after beating Conor McGregor in their last encounter, Justin Poirier was offered a shot at the vacant lightweight title. And he didn't take it. He chose to have the trilogy with Conor McGregor. And obviously, what's the incentive there? Money. Because when you fight Conor McGregor, you're not getting a bigger payday in the sport. Hmm. And obviously, he's done that to provide for his wife and kids. Could you argue that you know Justin Poirier cares more about money at this stage than legacy? You could argue that. I mean, it's difficult to determine what decision, you know, we'd all make because we're not getting, a, you know, like 20, 30 million pounds dangled in front of us of the Conor McGregor fight when, you know, maybe you'd only get one million for a world title fight. But I still think he's got all the determination in the world to become a world champion. And who knows, maybe he just has the confidence to say, you know what, I'll beat Conor McGregor, I'll take my 20 million and then I'll win the world title fight. I'll win both. You don't know what his mindset is. What does he have to do then to, to break into sort of the global... Uh, I like Conor McGregor has done and still is in the uh, in yeah the yeah it's difficult isn't it because 
after beating Conor McGregor, I think Nate Diaz sort of stepped into that realm a little bit because he had that sort of gangster-like appeal, and I don't think he necessarily crossed over massively in England. But in America, he was on all the talk shows. He was everywhere. And that's because he has that sort of gangster-like attitude that people get behind. Justin Poirier is just a nice guy. Just a nice guy. He has a, ch- a charity out in Lafayette where he looks after children. He does so much for people. He's just a nice person. And nice people don't necessarily cross into the public imagination all the time. And even though he knocked out Conor McGregor last time, I don't think his star power is massively rose. I don't know if the average sports fan knows who Justin Poirier is. Yeah, you're right, James, because I didn't know who it was, which which is a which is a thing. But I suppose with Conor McGregor, his sort of uh, sort of um, headlines were off the out of the rink, out of the out of the the sport, doing naughty things, and that and that's what brought him to people's eyes. And obviously, you said that the other guy isn't isn't sort of like that, and that might be his problem. Or, or does the sport not need that sort of that that uh, behaviour? I mean, it's difficult. I mean, in some ways, Rob, that behaviour helps sell the sport, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, Conor McGregor putting, you know, a, a dolly for a bus window ahead of the Khabib fight helps sell it. Mm. And that's sort of the reason why it did 2.4 million pay-per-view buys, which is the biggest in UFC history. Dustin Poirier is never going to do that. He might have an argument on stage, but I mean, if you look at the three biggest names of all time in the UFC, you've got Brock Lesnar, who came in because he had a massive fan base from the board of WWE the wrestling out there. Uh, he was a world champion in that. So he brought that fan base over. And they're a massive fan base because obviously the WWE is selling out, you know, 20,000 stadiums every single week. But again, probably a star in the United States with a bit of an appeal with wrestling fans over here. But United States star, probably. Ronda Rousey, again, you know, a woman who could fight. Maybe the first one who really broke out. And she was selling over a million pay-per-view buys in America. I mean, I, I mean, from your perspective, Rob, somebody who sort of follows the spot loosely, is Conor McGregor the only star, do you feel, that's really broken out and really become a massive name worldwide? I'd say it was, James, but I'd say it's, it's more about the antics out of the octagon rather than what went on in it. I thought he was still one of the like one of the best in the in the business. Uh, and you make it sound like he's, he's kind of maybe on the slide, which, which might be a bit of a problem for uh, UFC and its profile. Yeah, most certainly, because, I mean, he still has that sort of name value, doesn't he? Conor McGregor. People tune in to see that. But I mean, it, it must be weird for people who maybe don't follow the sport and then sort of read on an article, oh, Conor McGregor got beat at the weekend. What happens when you read that article three or four times? Do people stay interested in him? I mean, mm. you say he does all these things outside of the octagon, and yes, they do sell fights. I mean, when he when he puts stuff for a bus window, when he maybe pushes an old man. But at what stage do people look at that and just think, oh, he's being a bit of an idiot and they don't yeah. care about the fights anymore? And he's that sort of, you know, faded star. That's you know, you know, fading into obscurity and just getting himself in trouble. But he did have a boxing fight with Floyd Mayweather. It was like a different, different sport, putting himself into a sort of different world, wasn't it? And I suppose boxing and UFC, both sort of combat sports, both have an audiences that that need to be fed in in a way. And I suppose him jumping into that kind of helped his profile outside the sport in a way. No, I mean most certainly, man. Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor is the second highest selling boxing pay-per-view of all time. Mm. And that's mental when you consider one of them had never had a boxing fight before. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. And it showed the appeal of Conor McGregor. 
But, I mean, where does it leave him? I mean, and it sort of brings into this conversation about money, doesn't it? Because in his previous fight, it was he fought Eddie Alvarez for the lightweight championship of the world. And that was in 2015, the November of. And he looked absolutely incredible in that fight. He dismantled Eddie Alvarez. And then he lost to Floyd Mayweather. He was paid $100 million for that fight. And he hasn't won a fight at lightweight since. Mm. He's, fought, he, he's won one at 170 pounds against Cowboy Cerrone. He was well and truly on the slide. But aside from that, he's been beaten. In his other two fights, he's been massively inactive. And can somebody maintain that star power when they're not fighting? It's a good question, James, because obviously you need to be able to keep producing the results, don't you, uh, for people to still be interested. If you if you just start getting beat, then obviously you become yesterday's man pretty quick, don't you? Talking about defeats and wins, James, prediction time, who, who comes away with the victory on uh, on Saturday? I'd love Dustin Poirier to win because I'd still I'd like to see him have his moment of becoming UFC champion. But, and people might think I'm crazy, I'm going to edge slightly towards Conor McGregor. I think the fact that there wasn't a crowd last time played its part because Conor McGregor sort of feeds off that energy. And in their first encounter, Dustin Poirier struggled with that. So I think the, the fact that that'll be back and we're not in, well, we are, I suppose, in COVID, but in America, you know, they have got full crowds back. I think that'll really help McGregor. I think he'll ride that energy. I think he'll be inspired. I think it'll really help him in this one. And I think he knows this is the last chance to lose. So he's going to give this absolutely everything. I think, you know, I think he did take Dustin Poirier lightly. I think he thought, you know, I've beat you before. You're an easy fight. I'm just going to breeze through it. And he didn't. And I think he got a shot. And now I think he knows that he has to be at his best. I think mean, he's going to give everything. I'm going to edge towards him to win this one. There's a cracking co-main event as well. Tell us about that. There certainly is. I mean, we've got Gilbert Burns versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, two people who are both former world title contenders. I mean, many people thought that Stephen Wonderboy won his second world title shot. But either way, it's an absolutely fantastic fight. Gilbert Burns, so good on the ground, and his striking's getting better. He lost his world title fight last time out, but he's still been on a fantastic run. He has wins over the likes of Tyron Woodley, Damian Meyer. He's got a real good chance in this one. But I'm going to favour Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I think his kickboxing will give him the edge. I think his length will cause Gilbert Burns a few problems. And I think a lot of people want to see how his style matches up with the current champion, Kamari Usman. So I'm going to edge this one towards Stephen Thompson. Uh, finally, there's a great heavyweight matchup on the bill as well. Um, tell us about that. There is Greg Hardy, the former NFL star. Somebody who's crossed over from another sport. I mean, a massive name in the world of American football, taking on Ty Tuivasa, the Australian heavyweight. And it's a real good one. I'm going to edge towards Tuivasa in this one. I think he'll have a bit too much for Greg Hardy. Yep, that's all the UFC chat on the Sports Zone this week on Solve City Radio. Now we're going to be talking football. Yep, so let's talk football now and the Euros, James. What a fantastic tournament it's been so far. It's been absolutely tremendous, hasn't it, Rob? I mean, there's been golf fest galore, there's been penalty shootouts, there's been late drama, there's been so many good games, hasn't there? I mean, Switzerland shocking the world, beating France, we've had penalty shootouts, we've had that late winner from Ukraine against Sweden, it's all been fantastic. Is there any particular moment to you that stands out so far as the best of the tournament? Well, I think us beating Germany, James, was a big, big moment for everybody. Uh, many years of hurt against the Germans and to beat them uh, the first time in a major tournament since 1966 in the knockout stages is a fantastic thing. We, we needed that uh, to boost the morale of the country uh, in, in the, you know, the times that we're living, James. So that's been a fantastic moment, I thought, in the Euro so far. What about you? 
I mean, I agree with you, Rob. I thought that was absolutely incredible. I mean, I thought that Ukrainian last-minute winner against Sweden was fantastic. We'll get yeah. on to that. But let's talk the England-Germany game. I mean, Sterling and Kane, two people who've got a lot of stick this tournament. Sterling, some people saying that Southgate shouldn't be starting him. Some people criticised Harry Kane's fitness. They both bagged extremely important goals against Germany. You know, have they really given it to this, uh, to those who, you know, maybe have been hating on them throughout this tournament? I think they have, James. I think moments, big players... But- produced big moments and I think the German game showed that Raheem Sterling and uh, Harry Kane are two big players who can produce big moments both good goals as well uh, produced by uh, Luke Shaw as well like to add Manchester United's left back playing out of his skin <laughs> at the moment showing that them two players are the future and of England football and if they keep performing they could take us all the way to the final James I mean they really could couldn't they I mean we're starting to believe aren't they I mean we backed this Straight up, we carried on that momentum after beating Germany by absolutely hammering the Ukraine by four goals to them. I mean, what were you feeling, Rob, as each goal went in? Oh, it was, to be honest, the, the Ukrainian game was pure professionalism. I thought many uh, tournaments previously following England, James, you always go through that sticky period where they seem to be losing control and it it either comes down to a moment of magic or a mistake that either wins it or loses it. But this Ukrainian victory, in total control all the way through. Early goal from Harry Gain probably helped to settle everyone's nerves, but... We didn't look ruffled at all. We played pr- really good football, kept knocking the ball about, sped it up when we needed to, slowed it down when we needed to. Real, real professional performance. They talk about the Premier League full of foreign players and the English has not getting a chance. But the English lads showed that they've, they've learned how to play that way and it helps on the national stage in games like against the Ukraine where previously, remember against Iceland when we froze and, and we got beat there, it showed that they've learned from that as as a generation, and we've moved forward, and it's really good to good. It's a good feeling, obviously, going forward into these next couple of games uh, for England to see how far we can go. What What do you think, James? I think it's fantastic, and you think Gareth Southgate has allowed this England side to hit form at just the right time. Yeah, it's all about peaking at the right moment, James. And I think you know, with obviously the COVID situation and and you know having enforced breaks probably helped really when when you think about it um but these players are are ready to make history there's no burden on their shoulders of, of previous failures you can see that you can see why the how they're playing James there's no fear and fear is a big thing in in tournament football if you're afraid of, of attacking and afraid what might happen you'll go into your shell and you won't be able to play it and this team from what I can see haven't got any fear likes of Jack Grealish people calling for him to come on and play full eight full 90 minutes but he'll do his job when when Gareth Southgate needs a change, Jack Green will come on and mix it up. And, that, and that's what the, the great thing is. The likes of Phil Foden, everyone was raving about Phil Foden early in the tournament. Disappeared last couple of, couple of weeks. Uh, will he come on and, and make a big difference? Lots of great selection headaches for Gareth Southgate because he has a quality of squad there, which if he needs to change it tactically, he can. And that's the important thing because previously, like I said, James, we've had good players, but one gets off injured or one gets suspended and you're looking around the squad wondering what's going to happen. But this team, I don't know whether you agree with me, is full of talent. So he knows if one player goes down injured or gets suspended, he can draft another one in and the quality will not go down. Absolutely. I mean, Jaden Sancho drafted in to play against yeah. the Ukraine and looked absolutely spectacular. Of course, he's recently agreed terms of Manchester United, but 
What did you make of his performance? Do you think it's been the right decision from Southgate to leave him until this stage? Yeah, it's hard because I was beginning to think that. I was thinking, why is he not giving him a game? All this big noise about him signing for Manchester United. And you see the highlights. Uh, he, He is a very good player. But tactically... You know, Gareth Southgate has waited and waited and produced, put him on at the right moment. It was very good against Ukraine on 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 Saturday night, and that's that's the thing. He seems to know about uh, tournament football, and he, and he knows what he needs to do at certain moments. It'll be a big test this uh, semi final coming up, but it was a bigger test against Ukraine. Ukraine were the side that we were expected to win against, and. That builds pressure, and we've seen it before, like I said, against Iceland, where we didn't quite uh, win that one. Uh, but this one, we were in total control, no fear. Everyone played their own part, and we come away with, with a convincing victory, which which is what you want, really. You want to go into these, uh, you know, later rounds in quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals full of confidence, full of goals. I mean, a few weeks ago, Rob, we discussed the Scotland game, and we said this doesn't look like a European Championship winning side. Has the side that played Germany and Ukraine looked like a European Championship winning side? You would, you would, I would say that, James. To, to be fair, the Scotland game, Battle of Britain, did did we? Is that the game that that changed it? Because obviously, Scotland really did look like they were going to be more successful in that game. They looked like they were going to score, and that was probably the game where we froze. But to freeze against Scotland in a group stage where you can still get a point which puts you uh, over the fence into the next round, really, is better than freezing in a quarter-final against the Ukraine. They got it out of the system early. Scotland got the got the point, which, which they loved. We got through to the next round, so everyone was a winner. And now we've moved on. We, we've beaten Germany, which took a massive psychological uh, boost and off, you know, for us. And we got into the Ukraine game, blitzed them, and now we're on our, on our way to the semi-final. The old countries behind them were all buzzing like it was Euro 96. We just kind of hoping it ends a different way this time. Yeah, most certainly. I think it will. And how fantastic would it be if the man he maybe cost us all those years ago, Gareth Southgate? I know that's a horrible word, but he did miss that penalty. What if, you know, 20 or so years on, he can win the European Championship? I mean, surely that's a fairy tale story, a movie-like story. Yeah, it's, it's, rags, it's rags to riches, isn't it? It's, it's the low, the lowest you can go to the, the pinnacle. The thing is, though, he doesn't want to talk about it. He's just talking about his team and, and how his team performing. And he has a point because, like I said before, the lads who are playing now aren't burdened by previous failures. They have, don't care. There's no tightening of, of their, uh, you know, running and, and you know play when when they think something might happen it's it, they have belief and, and they're young enough and to explore it and enjoy and express and, and that's what as an English football fan you wanted teams previously to do previous teams yet full of superstars and when it really mattered didn't produce the goods this one team not quite full of superstars but can graft at a seam and, and get a result, which is which is fantastic. Gareth Southgate, people talk about his style of play not being attacking, fluent, and and you know bombing forward. But you don't win tournaments playing football, FIFA, do you? You play foot, you play football the right way by pressing at the right time and winning. Yeah, most certainly, Rob. And if we look on to the next game, we're playing Denmark, and it's a very tough one. But let's look at their route to the semi-final. I mean, we discussed last week their demolition job over Wales and what a huge shock that was. I mean, to win 4-0. I don't think anyone called that. Then in a professional performance, they beat the Czech Republic by two goals to one. I think they're the side that are everybody's second team. Everybody wants Denmark to do well in this tournament. But how much of a threat do they pose to England? 
they're a big, they are a big threat. Suddenly, we're the bad guys, especially with everything going on with, with Christian Eriksen. Um, you know, their coach, Kasper, is it Hunjaman? He has lots of lots to deal with. He's emotionally with the players, but the players are, are a good set of lads. You've got Macal Damsgar, uh, Martin Braithwaite. Um, you know, them them kind of players will do damage to the. The, 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 the English team if they're not prepared to, to dig in England will have to watch them and it's important obviously that we are ready to, to motivate and ready to, to manage that situation James Denmark aren't just there to turn you know to turn up and make up the numbers they're there to win and we need to make sure that we can beat them yeah I mean last time we were in a major tournament we were favoured to win when we got to the semi-finals so you think most people expected us to beat Croatia and we didn't will we have learned from that two years on can we beat Denmark I think I think the big test is was beating Germany because it's the psychological side of football that you always look back at the worst moment and think can we jump that hurdle we jumped that hurdle against Germany we then went to Ukraine and and beat a team we should have beat so really we've done both Achilles heel which England sides have suffered from previously this team like I said there's no fear in them. They'll go out and win this competition. And I feel this is probably our best chance to win a competition since 1966. Euro 96, you know, we, that was one what got away. Uh, but I don't see that happening on uh, on Wednesday night. No, we don't. And now let's move on, Rob, to the second semi-final. It's a good one. We've got Italy versus Spain. Italy, you know, for many people decide to beat in this tournament. Yeah, you're right. Italy are a good side. Uh, 13 wins in a row from Italy, so it's like a machine, the Azori. They they just know how to win football matches, especially in the big competitions. They come alive. They've gone 32 without defeat in, in every competition so far, which is which is really impressive. Um, England, Spain, obviously their next opponents will will be really really big test to to see if they can they can beat the the Italians. Um, they cruise through the groups, which was which is a thing. Really, that Mancini, the coach, tactically they've got it spot on. Immobile, that their their star centre forward, is chipping in goals and and causing controversy with her faking his injury and getting up and scoring. Sort of not scoring, but being involved in the celebrations after, um, which upset a few people. Uh, the, you can't discount the Italians, uh, and you're just hoping, obviously, that Spain and Italy both sort of tear chunks out of each other for 120 minutes, uh, and we'll pick up the the. The, the rest of them are on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a tough game for both sides. And if we look at their journeys, I mean, Spain had that absolute thriller with Switzerland, didn't they? Finishing 1-1, only winning on penalties. But do you think Spain could have, you know, for momentum purposes and for confidence purposes, could have done to have beaten Switzerland in normal time? Yeah, I, th- I think with Spain, what you've got to look at, three times champions, like you said, they struggled against Croatia, they struggled against Switzerland, but got through. And that's the thing. That's when you're champions, you learn how to win. As a country, they know how to win football matches. And they've struggled and managed to, to get through. This gaming in Stately will not be easy, James. It will be a tough competition. When push comes to shove, these Spaniards can, can graft. And I can see that's what's going to happen in this comp- this uh, semi-final. I don't think it's going to be a, a sort of 100 mile an hour end-to-end 5-4 thriller. Watch it, it probably will be now after I've said it. I don't <laughs> see that happening. I can see it being tight. I can see both sides wanting to wanting to sort of graft and, and nick one. Uh, but it will be interesting to see what happens. I'm, I'm looking forward to both semi-finals. It's going to be fascinating encounters uh, for all four teams. 
Yeah, absolutely. We can't wait for it. But if we look at who Italy beat in their quarterfinal, they beat Belgium, who I think were the third favourites overall at the start of this tournament to win it. Over the last decade or so, Belgium has got better and better and better. But they've not found the ingredients to win one of these major tournaments. And is it going to come during this golden age of Belgian football? Well, yeah, the, the Belgium, they've got some class players, haven't they, in, in, with Belgium. And, and Lukaku, um, you know, I saw him in the media talking about how he thought he should have been uh, elevated to the, being a world-class, the likes of Ronaldo um, and Lamessa. He should be put in the same bracket as them. When they talk about Lukaku, he said, oh, he's full of confidence, not being fantastic all the time. But then in that game, uh, I think it was against Italy, um, rebound comes out and he, he should took it away but he but he sort of spoons the ball wide and that's the difference if you want to be known as a world-class player you finish in them moments because that's what world-class players do and yeah he says I want to be seen as I want to be recognized as being uh, one of the best in the world if, if you can finish moments like that which turn games you will be unfortunately it didn't and Belgium are on the way home now they most certainly are. And somebody else on their way home, and probably home by now, are France. Yeah. Beaten by Switzerland on a penalty shootout. I mean, the Swiss keeper is an absolute hero there now, I assume. But, I mean, what do the French do? I mean, they were the Bucky's favourites to win this one. They were coming off a world championship victory. I mean, massive shock. Big shock. Big shock, James. And there was I last week, week before, talking about sort of who's going to stop the French. And, yeah, they seem to freeze at the big moment. And... I suppose with all that talent that you've got, you just need someone to, to find something. Paul Pogba scored a wonder goal in that in that game, but couldn't quite reproduce it in the in the in the final stages. Um, the, the penalty um, by Mbappe cost them in the end. And you think at that moment you're looking at Mbappe, you think to yourself, you're considered to be the next generation of of the the best in the world. We really need you to score there. And his penalty was was. Average at best, and I'm thinking to myself, it shows that I think when players do that, are they really, really considered to be the very best in the world? Because yeah, he will, he will grow from that. He'll learn from that, and maybe he'll be better in the next tournament. Uh, but to put that much pressure on him, this at this stage of his career, to kind of bail the French out of the big hole that they were in, uh, was too much for him. Yeah. And then, I mean, what, how much is that going to affect him as a football player? Because that was arguably the biggest moment of his life. And, you know, he missed it. I think I think the problem is it wasn't the best penalty in the world. Yeah, you can, you can kind of sort of, um, you know, let people off if it was a great penalty and it was a fantastic save. But this was just a, a bang average penalty. It wasn't struck the greatest, wasn't positioned the, the, the greatest. And the goal just had to pick the right way and it hit him. It wasn't the, 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 the most best penalty you've ever seen in your life so in that situation you're thinking to yourself maybe it might might affect Mbappe more than it would have been if it was just like a wonder wonder save but he is only young he's, he's, he's still at the top of his game but we'll need to see what happens the next few weeks and months and years ahead yeah most certainly and I know they're out now the Ukraine but I think we just have to touch on that fantastic game between themselves and Sweden I mean 120 minutes Last dying breaths of extra time and Ukraine bag ahead of victory. What a moment. Yeah, it is that, James. But then you think to yourself, you score in the last seconds of a game. The emotion that you sort of express and and the country expresses and and everybody's kind of like emotionally attached and drained from that moment. Did that affect them when they played England? Because they've 
he'd given so much and you know felt that emotion and, and enjoyed that moment that mentally they weren't prepared and they weren't ready for the next challenge. The thing with England, we've never we've haven't really had that kind of David Platt moment where we score in nineteen in the nineteen ninety ninety um World Cup in the last minute to take us through. We've not had that yet. And that's a good thing because I know I think emotionally we're still in check, which is it's a good thing moving forward. Yeah, I think so. And I thought what was difficult for the Ukraine is that they came against a very good English side that scored so soon. Hmm. I mean, it absolutely killed the momentum because they had this massive run after the uh, after the victory against Sweden. They were so happy, so enthusiastic. They were in the quarterfinals for the first ever time. And suddenly it was all swallowed up within three minutes of the game. It was, it was, James. And obviously with, with 30 seconds to go uh, now, it's going to be exciting to see what happens. You know, what's, what's your score prediction uh, for, for the big game on, uh, on Wednesday? It's a tough one, isn't it? I'm going to say England win again. Uh, I'm going to say that it's a two or three nil win. I'll go. I'll go two nil. Two nil win. I, I'm going to go England to win. Um, the way we're playing, James, I, I can see it being sort of three nil. No frills. Just go through, get a result, and that's the way we're playing. That's the way Gareth Southgate's got his men set up, and that's the way it's going to end. We're, we're obviously we're all going to get behind him. It's going to be fantastic to see, and we're all super excited about what's to come. Obviously, with this team in this competition and the competitions to follow. Big thanks for tuning in to this week's Sports Zone. I'm Ron Parkson, and we'll see you next week for more Salford Sporting Chat on Salford City Radio. <laughs>